Welcome, listeners. Hi, Harad. How are hey, you? Trish. How has your August been? It's been great. Lots of vacation, I trust. Perhaps too much vacation, which has come at the detriment of our fresh lensing, but it's September and back to school, back to podcasting. That's right. <laughs> so, listeners, we have been wanting to do some smaller episodes in between kind of the longer book episodes that we have been doing. Uh, and hopefully that will allow us to A, put out episodes a bit more frequently, and B, talk about some more you know, current events and news of the day sort of things from hopefully a fresh lens. Yeah, perhaps editorialize a little bit more than we would when we're sticking to the book. Right. So this week, we're continuing on our Jonathan Rausch theme, and we've been reading The Constitution of Knowledge. So this is a mini episode about some tangentially related yeah. ideas. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that we as a society are undergoing a bit of an epistemic crisis right now. And what that means is people have, they don't really know who to trust on what anymore, or at least increasing numbers of people kind of have the, have this feeling that traditional organizations that they may have been tempted to trust on various topics are not so trustworthy at this point. And I think that is an extremely legitimate place to be in September of 2021 because of everything that has happened basically for the last five years, uh, but specifically also in the last 18 months with the pandemic. So to be specific about this, throughout the pandemic, you know, first before March of 2020, there were a number of voices on social media that were kind of sounding the alarm on this mysterious virus that was uh, loose in Wuhan, China, and was spreading to a couple of other countries. And the official narrative was that, no, this is actually nothing to worry about. We don't need to halt international travel. We, there is no human-to-human -human transmission. And all this information was coming from the WHO, which is kind of the worldwide authority figure for health. But where they were getting their information was essentially from health officials in China, which basically means the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we were at least two months behind in responding to the pandemic. There's also reason to think that we were probably more than that behind because China was not allowing the information to get out even before, before December. And probably the pandemic was going on by November at the very least. So that was like the early failure. And then as the pandemic kind of got going... Even to sound the alarm of it breaking out in the U.S. required an act of civil disobedience. The FDA was not allowing a bunch of samples to be tested for COVID-19. Uh, COVID and there was a lab in Seattle that essentially defied their orders and tested them anyway and showed that, no, the virus is actually loose in the U.S., then we had the mask mandates where we were told you're not, you shouldn't be wearing masks. Actually, wearing a mask is more harmful. And then we had just a few months after we had that completely flipped out that, no, you should definitely be wearing masks. You should even be wearing two masks. Yeah. And so with all these confusing signals, people don't know who to trust anymore. And I don't think this, is, this should be a fringe thing. I think it's, it behooves all of us to take a second look at who we trust and why we trust them. Right? Yeah. So there's been an institutional failure. Exactly. Yeah. And so Rausch, what he was concerned about is, is kind of the other side is the dissemination of like things that just patently aren't true or fake news or whatever on the internet. So do you want to talk about that side of it? Well, I think what has happened in the last, basically since the internet kind of became a thing mm -hmm. is 
what we had was we had organizations like, let's say, the New York Times or the Washington Post, and they were kind of the official disseminators of good information. The right? gatekeepers. The gatekeepers, yeah. right? And you trust them to have some kind of journalistic prof uh, professionalism where they verify the information that they publish. But what they actually had going for them was a monopoly on distribution of information. What the internet did is absolutely decouple the information from its distribution. So now distribution is absolutely free. Anyone can get distribution to the whole world for free, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need printing presses anymore. You don't need truck routes for, for your papers in the morning. Mm -hmm. None of that. And But what that, ha that has done is if you go on Facebook, you can see postings from me, from Joe Rogan, and from the New York Times on the same feed mm -hmm. at the same level of standing without any distinction, right? So, but what that also means is if the New York Times is publishing something that is untrue, there will be a lot of alternative voices that will call that out. And in fact, there will be a lot of alternative voices to the New York Times anyway. So you're going to have to kind of figure out for yourself what is something that you're going to trust and not. And perhaps people would be more willing to trust some organization like the New York Times if they hadn't so blatantly published things that were untrue so many yeah. times in the last few years, right? Mm -hmm. And so with the what a lot of people, I think, like Jonathan Rauch, like Sam Harris, if you listen to some of his uh, more recent podcasts, what they are longing for is essentially putting this internet genie back in the bottle. And I think what they're missing is that some part of this information that we were getting some part of the news that we were getting in the past was always a little bit false. We had the New York More Times. More than a little bit false. Well, You're being generous saying it was a little bit false. Well, <laughs> at least a little bit of it was was fake right. news, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. For, like the New York Times was fully on board with this narrative that there are WMDs in Iraq. One thing that I kind of learned recently and included in a, in a Twitter thread was in 1939, the New York Times was actually friendly with Hitler's government. And they reported that it was Poland that invaded Germany, not the other way around. So there have been this incentive alignment issues in our news organizations and in our official bureaucracies, except the internet, before the internet, they were not surfaced. And now they are. And or they now, took a very long time to surface. Or did, exactly, yeah. exactly. People have been pushing platforms like Facebook and Twitter to introduce various mechanisms. And I think Roush kind of talks about this a little bit. There are multiple mechanisms that are being tried here, but for example, they want these algorithms to essentially not not surface as much, not make as prominent. Yeah, as, yeah, yeah. Uh, not distribute? I don't know. Not, not distribute, but like amplify. Not amplify. amplify yes. to, to not amplify, for example, pieces of information that these authoritative figures say are untrue. But if you think about it, it was exactly the authority figures that were that have been wrong. So in in early 2020, if you said the virus that was coming out of China was a, uh, a pandemic risk, which some people did, you if those mechanisms were in place back then, you would have been kind of essentially censored off the off the social media platforms, and you would have been written off as a uh, as a crackpot. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the idea of wearing a mask early on in the pandemic. Same thing with the lab leak hypothesis, which, as far as I'm concerned, is now has a preponderance of evidence in its favor. Mm -hmm. uh, but it took a year of people being vilified for even trying to talk about it, right? Yeah. 
So it is exactly those authorities that Facebook and Twitter are relying on that are the problem. Are they're the reason why various voices on Facebook and Twitter are gaining credibility is because those authority figures have squandered theirs. And yet these mechanisms are being put into place where alternative voices are being shut down. And I get the attraction of that because if Joe Rogan comes and says, I took such and such a drug for treating COVID and people think that that is a way to solve the problem, then, you know, you could say that there is some, some harm in that, but that doesn't change the fact that you're not allowed to go and lie about Joe Rogan afterwards or try to discredit Joe Rogan in a way that is blatantly false mm -hmm. in order to discredit him and have people not listen to him. As a journalistic institution, you still must report the truth. Right. Well, that seems to be kind of what the problem is, is that it feels to me like at some point, a lot of these big institutions at like newspapers or maybe, you know, like the CDC, they shifted their focus from actual truth seeking and establishing facts to like ha to trying to be the you know like the moral narrative and try and like do like present a narrative for what they perceive to be the greater good and that facts only mattered if it like supported this narrative that they thought was more important than the facts exactly exactly so the the moralizing of what is true has, is actually a huge part of the problem because The way, and people can tell, they can, they can smell this in the, mm -hmm. in the information that's being fed to them, right? The way the information is coming out by every appearance is not so much like what is true and what is not, is what is the consequence of this information being out there or not? Yes. So for example, in the, in the Trump years, a lot of people thought Trump is absolutely the worst thing that has ever happened and we need to stop him at every, at every chance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the news articles that were published about this, for example, about Russia Gate, about the P tapes, the Steele dossier, years later, years after like many, uh, kilobytes of articles were, um, were written on the, on that subject. When an actual investigation took place, it turns out that no, like the, the most basic journalistic methods of verifying the information were not followed because there was a, there was an unverified leak that supported a certain conclusion. And as long as it supported that conclusion, it was okay to run with it to the press, right? Right. And so I think the distrust in the media, the distrust in public health bodies, I think these are at least somewhat justified. I think it behooves these organizations to try to regain that trust instead of vilifying the people who mistrust them due to their own failures, which is only kind of compounding the failure in, mm -hmm. in the first place. And I don't think we're going to put this genie back in the bottle. I think we are the internet for the better is going to help us come up with a new epistemic regime that helps us make sense of the world. And it's not going to be the New York Times having a monopoly on what is true. It's not going to be the CDC having a monopoly on what is public health. Uh, like what Raj talks about is like the method of reality-based community, there's going to be multiple authorities and they're going to fight each other. And whoever does their job better is going to come out on top. And it's going to be different organizations at different times or different groups of people at different times. But I think we're all going to be better as a result of that. I don't think the old world is something to be nostalgic about. Centralization does not feel like right. the answer at this point. Right. Decentralization feels, um, and having that, 
a platform where ideas can be openly discussed instead of just trying to immediately be censored. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so, for example, one of the one figure that has kind of arisen out of this last year and a half as kind of an authority figure is Zainab Tufekci, who I think is widely respected as an authority figure on anything related to the pandemic. And she is not an expert in in this field at all. She has a PhD in sociology, but she went to look for herself when the I, I believe the first instance when she waded into this was maybe on the on the masks. Or maybe that might have been the first thing that kind of uh, shot her to fame. I think she may have been talking about it even earlier. But she decided that the public discourse was not making sense. And she went to look for herself. And I think you're going to find a lot more people doing this. And they will build their reputations on the quality by which they do this. So if people start putting out crackpot theories about some unproven drug that is going to save everyone. I think you're going to start seeing that kind of thing. Those kind of people lose credibility. Mm -hmm. And you know what? They're always going to have some diehard followers and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But over time, I think we're going to build new systems of trust where it is not going to be a single monolithic organization, which is basically a single point of failure. Yeah, Um, that's the problem is that when that single point fails. Exactly. Yeah, we all suffer as as a result of it, right? Yeah, and it's so, and it's not even that, like you know, because any organization it's made up of humans, like it's going to be fallible. And like Roush talks about so much in Kindly Inquisitors, being fallible of figuring out you were wrong about something isn't the problem. It's sort of abandoning the truth seeking endeavor. Yeah, I think there is a difference between fallibility. I think we should all be okay with corrections being made, right? Yes. Um, so if you can kind of show that you put something out that ended up being false, but you can show that you did your best to make it as true as you could possibly make it at the time, that is fine. And if new information appears and you have to revise your conclusions, that is also fine. The problem is at this point, it's absolutely clear that a lot of our institutions are beholden to some incentives that is not the truth. They're beholden to, like you said, a moralistic outcome Mm -hmm. that they have kind of already prejudged to be like the the direction that everything must go mm-hmm. or yeah the various internal incentives to suppress certain information yeah i mean i i don't mean to say that everything the new york times prints is false but i do mean to say that the new york times does not deserve a special place as a conveyor of truth and luckily i don't think they have it yeah well I think that that was a, a good 15-minute episode for you and as some teasers of what our conversation will be like, an ex- our extended conversation will be like when we talk about the constitution of knowledge in more depth. Yeah. And uh, listeners, please tell us if you like these uh, mini episodes. We are going to try to do more of them and let us know what topics you would like to hear more about. Listeners, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. We always appreciate your support. Please subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. If you use Twitter, follow us there at FreshLensPod. Finally, we always love to hear your feedback. Our email address is hello at freshlenspodcast.com.